thank you so much, Elaine, for that nice introduction. And I'd like to um, thank the organizers for inviting me to talk to you today about this exciting new modality for prevention and treatment of HIV. Um, here's my disclosure. And here are the objectives for today's talk. I won't read, but um, you can see here on the screen. Uh, so this is, these are the generally accepted definitions for long-acting formulations of medications. So something that lasts for more than a week, greater or equal to a week, for an oral formulation is considered long-acting. For a parenteral injection, greater than or equal to a month. And then for an implant or device, six months. And so there are quite a lot of exciting technologies in development for HIV and other indications looking at long-acting formulations. So uh, there's um, long-acting depot injections, which we'll be talking about today, but there's also microneedle patches in development, uh, novel oral formulations, pumps, vaginal rings, implants, and so on. So we should be hearing more about this in the upcoming weeks to months and maybe other options that our patients might enjoy. So why do we want this? You know, we are, you, you on the, in the audience here, many of you are experienced clinicians. We know that daily oral therapy for HIV treatment works incredibly well. Prep works well too. Um, why do we want this alternative? So these are some of the potential advantages of long acting treatment. Obviously less frequent dosing as we just outlined. Um, I think an important one for HIV care in particular is to get away from this pill fatigue. I know many of us hear this from our patients very often. It's just they're absolutely sick of taking pills every day and they'd like to have an alternative. Theoretically, bypassing oral dosing using an injection may improve bioavailability, decrease adverse events and drug-drug interactions. Or some of this is yet to be proven. We don't have clear evidence for all of these things, but these are theoretical advantages. Protection of privacy is important, particularly for, I think, patients with HIV infection. If they're on just an injectable therapy, no one's got no co-worker or housemate is going to see their pill bottle and wonder what that's for. And uh, relatedly, uh, avoidance of HIV-related stigma. This is both internal and external stigma, which is still a major issue for patients, uh, as most of you already know. And we do have some qualitative data from participants of some of the phase three trials that were looking at monthly injections of HIV treatment that not having to take a pill every day and not having to be reminded about having HIV was a huge relief to many patients. So the one unanswered question I would posit is, is this treatment modality going to improve adherence? And I think we would all love to think that, yes, it will. And we all worry about patients in our clinics with sub who struggle with suboptimal adherence. And, you know, maybe this is an option for them. But I will go through the data that we have and then you guys can um, decide for yourselves. So do our patients actually want this? So uh, several years ago, I did this study with uh, Charlie Flexner from Hopkins, where we looked at patients in both of our clinics. This is patients with HIV taking daily antiviral therapy, doing very well on it to see if they might be interested in getting 
their treatment by injection instead. And you can see the demographics on the left and then on the right here, looking at the timing of injections for uh, monthly injections, very high levels of interest. And I was surprised by this because I thought that our patients were doing perfectly well on their daily oral therapy. But many of them said, no, they would much rather look at something different. So we have now in the pipeline very many potential long-acting formulations. Not all of them are going to make it, but in pretty much every drug class, including some investigational one, there are long-acting formulations of antiretroviral drugs, either for uh, oral formulations, injections, implants, uh, intravenous infusions, and these are the developmental stages that they're in for either treatment or prevention indications. But today we're going to focus on these two drugs, which, as you know, were recently approved by the US FDA uh, for use in patients in combination. So this is the first uh, two-drug all-injection um, approved formulations that we have. So I would also remind everyone that Dr. Raj Gandhi will be talking later in this session about other investigational drugs, some of which are on this list. So just to remind everyone, these are the seminal studies for uh, long-acting injectable cabotegravir and ropivirine. There's two phase three trials. One's called Atlas, one's called Flare. They have a similar design. Atlas was for patients that were on daily oral therapy, doing well, had undetectable virus. They uh, did not have a history of resistance or hepatitis B, and they were randomized to continue their daily oral therapy or to start getting treatment with monthly injections following a one-month oral lead-in with oral capotegravir and ropivirine just to ensure tolerability. And after the primary endpoint at week 48, many of them have continued in an, uh, the so-called ATLAS 2M study, which I'll, I'll talk about in a few minutes. The sister study, FLARE, was for patients who were treatment naive. They took uh, oral therapy as indicated for 20 weeks, and assuming they attained undetectable viremia, were randomized in a similar fashion to monthly injections. These are the, this is the primary endpoint for the ATLAS study. This is for patients that were switched from their oral therapy. And you can see in the green bar there, the virologic success rate for the injection arm was very high and basically very similar to the success rate in the purple bar for the continuing oral therapy. And this was well within the 6% non-inferiority margin that um, was used in the trial design. In the FLARE study, this is for patients who were started on oral therapy for initially treatment naive and then randomized uh, to actually continue that or go on the injections. Similarly, very high levels of virologic success in both arms and uh, also within the non-inferiority margin for this study too. So this is a little deeper dive into the uh, few patients who did have confirmed virologic failure, uh, some of whom also developed resistance-associated mutations. So there were three participants in each of these phase three trials that developed virologic failure with resistance. And this outlines them all here. Five of them were from sites in Russia, 
They were all thought to initially have A1 subtype virus, but this has since been revised on a further um, virologic investigations by the team. And in fact, they have A6 virus, which is slightly different. It's also uh, strongly associated with the L74 polymorphism at baseline. So you can see the baseline mutations, which were evaluated using the archive G- DNA sequencing assay. These are the viral loads uh, in the next column, uh, suspected and confirmed virologic failure. And then you can see the treatment emergent uh, resistance-associated mutations that did occur both to um, NNRTI and to uh, integrase inhibitors and the fold change in susceptibility in the final column. So it would be very nice to be able to just explain this away, saying, well, these participants missed their injections and their concentrations got too low, and that's why they had virologic failure with resistance. But it's actually not that simple. So even though for these particular patients, most of them had concentrations that were below the mean for the whole study population. They were well within the the range, and there were also participants with lower concentrations that maintained virologic suppression. So it's not quite as simple as that. But as I mentioned, the team has gone on to do a more in-depth evaluation of patients with confirmed virologic failure. And this um, was presented at Croy and has also been uh, just recently published in AIDS. So this is a new variant analysis of patients with virologic failure in all of the phase three trials. And this includes the follow-on ATLAS 2M study. So this is 1,039 participants altogether, of whom 13 had confirmed virologic failure. So obviously this is a rare event, but these are some of the factors that played into it. And so uh, the red bars show whether or not a covariant was present and the blue bars show that it was present, it wasn't present. And then along the X axis, you can see the proportion of patients with failure. So uh, the, these are the concentrations of, of cabotegravir and then rolpivirine, BMI of greater or less than 30, the subtype, whether or not they had this A6 subtype whether or not they had this baseline polymorphism at L74, other proviral resistance-associated mutations at baseline, and uh, female sex, and then whether or not they were on every eight weeks, which uh, which um, was an option for the Atlas 2M study, or every four-week injections. And so the multivariate analysis identified these factors which were associated with increased risk of failure. Presence of proviral rilpivirine mutations at baseline, this uh, HIV subtype A6, and or BMI of greater than or equal to 30. So this raises the question of, you know, do we need to start subtyping patients before they go on injection therapy? I think based on these data, I would say, uh, no, we don't, because this is very uncommon. Similarly, we don't need to do archive genotyping. We may need to give some thought about using this treatment modality in patients with higher BMI, although there is an option for using uh, longer needles for for such patients to ensure that the injections actually end up in the muscle where you want it to be. 
Briefly on the safety data for the phase three trials, really not all that exciting. You've seen this before. Nothing much happened in uh, either study, which was great. This is, these are the combined safety data in terms of serious drug-related adverse events. But I show this because I know there's interest in weight gain, particularly with integrase-based uh, regimens. And so these are at the bottom, the data on weight increase, uh, Week 48 from baseline, and as you can see, modest in both arms. So not much happened in terms of uh, weight gain for patients in the phase three trials. So uh, injection site reactions are definitely a thing. These were common. Patients in the phase three trials did often get injection site reactions. They were pretty much all mild and uh, self-limiting within a day or two. I personally was quite surprised how well these were tolerated by participants at our site. They were a little bit sore for a day or so, but honestly, people didn't worry about it too much, and it did seem to decrease over time. But this is going to be some an issue that our patients will need to think about and may require some management as this treatment modality is rolled out. So as I'm sure you all know, uh, the, these phase three trial data led to approval by the US FDA of this first complete long acting injectable regimen. And you can see the indication there on the right. It's basically a switch indication. Uh, adults who are on an oral therapy doing well with virologic suppression, there are no history of um, treatment failure. Also note that these drugs don't um, are not active against hepatitis B. So those are patients that also will either need to not use this treatment or have oral therapy for their hepatitis B. So at Croy, we learned about the week 96 data for ATLAS 2M. So this was the follow-on study to ATLAS, which included many ATLAS participants and then others in which they were randomized to continue uh, monthly injections or to go on every eight-week injections. And this was the primary comparison. And so we now have the week 96 virologic data, which showed that there was basically no difference between the every eight-week and every four-week regimens in terms of virologic suppression. This fell within the non-inferiority margin. And we also got a little bit of information about the small numbers of patients who did have confirmed virologic failure in ATLAS 2M, including one who developed this between weeks 48 and 96. And you can see in the two arms, the uh, number of virologic failures was small, perhaps more in the every eight week arm. And you can see the uh, resistance associated mutations that were observed at failure for both rilpivirine and integrase in the study participants. So switching gears now to talk a little bit about long acting therapy for prevention. And I think many of you are probably very familiar with the results of these two outstanding studies, OHPTN 083 and 084, one for cisgender men and transgender women and the other for cisgender women, both with similar designs using a double dummy, double blind design, both large studies designed to compare every eight week oral cabotegravir in the long acting formulation as compared to the standard 
uh, oral PrEP using tenofovir FTC. Both studies stopped by the DSMB early because of uh, these very spectacular results. This is for 083. You can see the orange line is the incident HIV infection in the injectable cabotegravir arm over time and the dotted blue lines for the oral tenofovir FTC. So this uh, amounted to almost a 70% reduction in HIV incidence and is clear demonstration of the benefits of the long-acting formulation as compared to standard one pill once a day, which, as you may remember from the original PrEP studies, decreased HIV incidence by something like 40%. For the study in women, even more dramatic results showing uh, almost 90% reduction in HIV incidence, which we were all, I think, extremely pleased to see, in particular because many of prevention studies in women have had disappointing results. And I think we were all excited to see a potential option that patients actually seem to like and that worked so incredibly well. So at Croy, we had the closer look at infections in the 083 study in the cabotegravir arm from some post hoc lab testing. And I think I'll just summarize this as saying it was complicated. I would uh, direct you, if you can, to actually follow the presentation. But this is kind of the take-home message. There were uh, 12 incident and four baseline infections in the cabotegravir arm. So this is an uncommon event and seemed to happen at different times. So uh, on this slide, the little green things that look like asterisks or little viruses are the timing of the infections, you know, the first four at baseline and then the following incident infections that seem to occur at different times during study follow-up. Some of them in patients who had uh, stopped getting their injections for whatever reason and so were theoretically in this so-called pharmacokinetic tail period that we worry about. So pharmacokinetic tail is the uh, amount of time a drug will persist in the body following the last dose. And because cabotegravir, long, uh, the injection is such a long-acting formulation, this persists for months after the last injection. And so we worry that as patients have decreasing exposure to the drug, they may be at risk for getting infections during this tail period. So the take-home message for this is obviously that the uh, cabotegravir intervention was highly effective. Incident infection was rare, as you can see there. But uh, several things were learned. So one of them is that use of the long-acting injections can delay antibody expression. And so it actually delayed detection of infection, including some prevalent infections. So patients actually got started on the injections, even though they had HIV infection at baseline. So that is a consideration moving forward if, if from when this study gets approved and goes into widespread use, you know, sh uh, the, the uh, our conventional testing algorithms may not pick up every infection, either at baseline or incident infections. There were a small number of failures, despite the fact that patients got their injections on time and had adequate cabotegravir 
exposure and a small number of smaller number of them, five out of 16 uh, developed integrase resistant mutations with virologic failure. There were four infections that occurred during the so-called pharmacokinetic tail, and none of those actually developed resistance, although uh, this number is small, that is still reassuring. And so I think these data do raise the question of, should we be using a viral load test rather than our traditional antibody testing to monitor patients on PrEP with long-acting cabotegravir? It's still an unanswered question, but uh, one that we'll need to consider and may complicate things, although virologic testing is getting more uh, in widespread use and hopefully less expensive and um, easier to implement. So where we go now? What what is the future for this long-acting formulation? So uh, one of the issues that has come up is this so-called oral lead-in. So I mentioned in the phase three trials, patients took oral formulations of these drugs for four weeks and nothing really happened. There was really no adverse events, uh, nothing exciting happened. And so in the, in the uh, extension to the FLARE study, this oral lead-in was made optional. So this is not a randomized comparison. Patients and providers were able to decide if they wanted to take the oral lead-in or not. But as you can see, uh, conveniently, about 100 in each arm decided uh, one way or the other, and the virologic suppression rates were pretty much exactly the same in both arms. So it seems as if this oral lead-in may not be necessary in the open-label PrEP studies that are going on. This is going to be made optional, and I uh, think that's a consideration that we should all think about somewhat as we start uh, rolling out this option for treatment in patients, particularly those that have terrible trouble taking tablets or taking pills. I think we all have a few patients like that in our practice. And uh, the monthly injections might be a great thing for them, but they would have trouble with the monthly oral lead-in. So that would be an option to think about maybe not even using that. The company are working on some using some of the new technologies we talked about at the beginning, such as microarray patches, there is a more concentrated version of the long-acting formulation under investigation, double strength. The injections currently are uh, quite large. The, each drug, cabotegravir and rolpivirine, is two mils each. So patients have to have sort of one in each gluteus, medius muscle. And a two mil injection is beyond the reach of you know, self-administration. And so this opens the door to maybe that would be an option in the future. And there's also some biodegradable implants that are uh, non-biodegradable implants that are in um, uh, development. So what about long-acting antiretroviral therapy in special populations? So pregnant women, as is sadly so typical, were excluded from uh, all of the studies so far, and if they became pregnant on study, taken off, and that is changing now. And so they'll be continued on the cabotegravir rupivirine long-acting if they want to, with after giving uh, consent for this, and with additional PK monitoring, so we can learn about how, how these formulations function in pregnant women. This will be true for, um, for the prevention indication also. There are uh, studies either ongoing or in development for 
treatment indication of long-acting cabotegravir-wilkerin in children. You can see them here for older children going on now and younger children in development and adolescent sub-studies for the preps. The PrEP indications are ongoing, so we will have more information about use in uh, special populations. Still not for quite for uh, non-adherent populations, but uh, many of us, I think, as clinicians are struggling with how are we going to implement this in our already busy HIV clinic, there is a lot of cons- factors to consider, both at the individual, the clinic, and um, the logistical uh, settings. Patients are going to need a lot of uh, information about this, uh, just implementing the whole staffing of it. You know, as you know, we see patients now maybe every six months. And so having them coming every a month will be difficult. Having a coordinator to monitor to make sure that they actually do come um, will be another challenge because most of us don't have coordinators sitting around, you know, waiting for something like that to be asked to do. The sponsors are uh, conducting two implementation studies as outlined on this slide that are both ongoing, but when completed will inform some of these questions. And so it, it, in summary, I think this is overall a very exciting development. I think having more choices for patients and for providers is always good. And I'm excited to be able to offer this to uh, patients in our, uh, my clinic particularly. I think it's important to note that all of the treatment trials so far have included only patients with optimal adherence. So this, whether or not this, uh, this option is going to help our patients with adherent challenges is an unanswered question, but hopefully will be answered by this ongoing ACTG study called Latitude. So if you have the opportunity to refer patients to this study, please do so. Uh, we're going to have to adapt a little bit to some different paradigms for patients at risk of virologic failure. I think we're all used to patients with oral therapy, uh, ones that we know are just not refilling their pills. They tell you they're missing, you know, you know that you need to worry about them. But with the injections, it's slightly different because there will be some that get their injections exactly on time as they're supposed to and may still fail and occasionally will develop resistance. So this is something that will have to be accounted for. And uh, the, this, is, I think, will weigh into the decisions that patients and providers will jointly make about whether this option is suitable for them. And then, as I mentioned, our clinics are going to need to have some fairly serious adjustment to the workflow to address the logistics for this. And uh, just remember, even though there are uh, issues to consider, this is first in class. So many of us remember when this drug came along, sequinavir, the first protease inhibitor, and how excited we were about that and how far we've come uh, since that was developed. And so with that, I'll turn this back over to Dr. Abrams for the Q&A session. Fantastic. Well, thanks for that uh, exciting, exciting talk. And even though I heard many of those presentations at, at Croy, I still learned a lot from from your summary. So thank, thanks so much. We have a, a couple of questions that have come through. Um, I think the first is uh, a question on how long after the cab injection are we telling patients they're protected? 
um, when, when it's used for prevention? So the implication is that if it's, if it's, in, it's stopped for some reason, how long does the protection persist? Is that your understanding, Elaine? I, I think you're saying from, if you get a shot today. Oh, I see. You know, tomorrow, do, do we need to cover them for some period of time before we think the injection provides full protection? Yes, yes, that's a great question. And so uh, that is one of the issues um, with uh, the treatment and prevention indications is that um, part of the sort of long-acting formulation is it just take a minute to get up to the kind of therapeutic that levels that you want to either protect against HIV or to su- suppress HIV, which is one of the issues of not using the um, oral lead-in, although that does seem to be a safe approach. So for prevention, it doesn't work immediately. There's some uh, talk about maybe uh, you could include a double dose of the oral formulation, you know, just at the beginning to provide a little bit of extra protection until the levels get to where you need them. And then if for any reason the injections are stopped, people decide they want to go off prep, they will be protected for a while. But then, you know, you do get into this worrisome area of the pharmacokinetic tail where they may be at risk for an incident infection, potentially with resistance, but we haven't seen that yet. Super. So I think that there's another question about about the the tail and for people who were getting uh stop cab how do we have to cover them to provide protection during the yeah. tail yeah yeah so this this is you know we all worry about this obviously for the treatment indication it shouldn't really be an issue because obviously the idea is people go on treatment and you know stay on treatment forever and so for whatever reason they stop the injections they decide they don't like them anymore the sick of the injection site reactions, uh, then you just, you know, switch them to oral therapy and they're good to go. And so, you I, you know, the the um, studies uh, recommended just starting that immediately, even though, you know, they'll still have some of the long acting drugs in their system. You just start them on full full dose uh, oral therapy for treatment for the prevention indication that is, uh, again, more tricky. And so. If people go off it because they don't feel they're at risk and they're really not at risk, they should be okay. But the drugs can persist for months and months. And so uh, it, it is a worry. And so I, ideally what's recommended is that patients go on oral preventive therapy for a year after discontinuing the injections. Okay. Um, there's another question of whether there is a concern with um Cabotegravir, as there were concerns with dalutegravir during early pregnancy yeah. conception. Yeah, so that's a, a, a excellent question. They're chemically, you know, similar. Um, we have really pretty much there, there were very few incident pregnancies in the treatment trials and some in the prevention trials. Uh, there's been no signal of anything to date, but that's uh, an unanswered question that we'll need to keep uh, monitoring going forwards. And obviously, um, 
particularly for the treatment indication, we would encourage providers to uh, upload all their information to the antiviral pregnancy registry so we can we can learn this. I, I would add that there are concern around the relationship between neural tube defects and valutegravir has lessened over time, has right. gotten more data. Yeah. So uh, we're also being asked whether uh, we can, patients might be able to self-administer. Yes. Um, yeah. So this is this is a great question. A uh, lot of interest in that patients would love to do it. As I mentioned, you know, uh, the loading dose is three mils, two injections of three mils each into a you know large gluteus muscle and so uh or pretty much it's slightly difficult to administer you have to do that z tracking thing and so self-administration or even you know having your friend or your mother do it you know would be difficult uh but i think with the more concentrated versions if we can get the injection volume down that would definitely be uh uh an option for potential self-administration maybe into a deltoid or something. So it's something that the companies are interested in uh, actively working on. So not for right now, but perhaps for in the future. So someone else is asking, um, despite being infrequent, if a patient does develop insulin resistance while on long acting, what are their treatment options? Or should PrEP fail? Yep. Yeah, this is, this is also an excellent question. And, uh, as you, you know, you may recall for the, uh, phase three treatment trials, uh, patients weren't enrolled if they had history of resistance to, uh, other drug classes. And so that would be a consideration for, you know, if you're going to start someone on these injections and they've had a history of, you know, multiple episodes of virologic failure with resistance. I think it would give you pause, but if you have a patient who's essentially had no resistance before, they fail injection therapy with resistance. Most, this isn't being mandated by any of the protocols, but what has happened in most instances is providers have opted for a PI, protease inhibitor-based regimen, which I think we're all more comfortable with, even though it does seem the cabotegravir has a different resistance barrier from dolutegravir and bigtegravir, and it may be safe to use another integrase. I think we all worry about that a little bit if there are incident integrase uh, mutations. And so um, most people have felt safer using a PI-based regimen in almost every instance. So that would be, I think, the plan B. Okay. Well, there are many other questions, but unfortunately we're out of time. Thank you so much for the great talk and for being in the hot seat of answering all these questions. Um, I think we now will turn to our next speaker.